Kia ora, welcome to this episode in Season 3 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, Church Minister, Chaplain and Radio Broadcaster. Recovering is a Media Chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode, I sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them both personally and professionally. In this episode, I sat down with staff reporter Olivia Shivers. Olivia was born with muscular dystrophy and is a strong advocate for better representation of the disabled community in the media. She has a clear understanding of what good media can achieve for the community she cares so much about. In this episode, Olivia and I chat about her time covering the Abuse and Care Royal Commission of Inquiry. The behaviours and anger that was taught in these institutions and environments that showed no love and no care to small, vulnerable, grief-stricken children. They were repeatedly tortured, isolated, raped, used as slave labour and much, much more. Olivia brings a unique lens to this important issue. Many of us are aware of the harrowing nature of the topic, the abuses many suffered in institutions that were meant to care for them. Olivia brings a lens that sees the disabled community within the story, a community that is too often vulnerable to neglect, abuse and a loss of dignity. Olivia, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And one of the reasons it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, not just because we've known each other for a while now and have been friends, it's because uh, listening to the podcast that you did, What's Wrong With You? One of, one of the things that I was extremely captured by was just how much joy was in that podcast, how many laughs were had, how much humor there was. And I have no doubt that a lot of people, when they think about disability, which we're going to talk about in a second, imagine victimhood. They imagine struggle. They imagine the hardship of life. And no doubt there's been those things in life. But to listen to a podcast where a couple of people who have been through the experience and are going through the experience just encapsulates so much joy was a delight. It's one of the reasons that I wanted you on. Thank you. Well, I hope I can bring some joy today. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I do feel like I've always had a lot of joy and within my close group of disabled friends, we have a lot of joy and in-jokes and laughter between us. So I remember I had a friend listen to the trailer saying, like being surprised, she said the same word, joy, as if she didn't think that disabled people could have joy, although she knew me. And so I'm like, we need to share this with the world. Yeah, I like that. Now there's a, for me, there's a public humor that I have, then there's a private humor. And as a church minister, they look slightly different because I'm sure some people would be aghast if they heard some of the private, darker humour. Is that, is that the case with you? You've got the humour that you'll happily share in public, and is there a slightly naughtier private humour? Definitely, yeah, definitely. It gets pretty dark when I am with my disabled friends. <laughs> I don't know if other people heard those jokes. I'd be like, that's very inappropriate, but... It's definitely appropriate now in our circle. <laughs> <laughs> now, for those uh, people who might not be familiar with you, talk us through your disability. Yes. So I was born with a condition called muscular dystrophy, central core congenital myopathy. It's a bit of a mouthful, but basically it means that all my muscles are weak. So my arms, legs, anything that functions is all the muscles are weak. Um, and I use a wheelchair to get around. So I've got pretty good hand and upper body strength and function. Um, but I do use power assist wheels, which really help me 
get up hills I've got a ramp that gets into my car and things like that so yeah fully independent but that's only because of the tools and resources that help me do that as well. Mm. How was that for you growing up? Yeah I think because I was born with a disability it was normalized and it was something quite normal in my family I had other family members who had disabilities as well so it wasn't I didn't have a significant kind of life change and shock to the system like other people do who have you know say a spinal cord injury later on in life so it was always something that I kind of grew up with and was normal and kind of had to learn to adapt to a world that wasn't made or built for people with disabilities but in saying that it wasn't always easy like I think probably one of the hardest things I struggled with growing up was just being left behind or falling behind when kids would be running off into the playground and I couldn't do that but I found other ways to make friends with I remember the more like junior kids at school playing with them rather than kind of going off on the playground. Yeah, nice. Journalism. You're a journalist. Is that what you always imagined being? Yes. Yep. I think I was about nine or ten when I knew I wanted to be a journalist. Doing a similar thing like we're doing here now. I was recording a radio show with my friend. It was about dragons though, a bit different. So talk it to and no, that's a, that's a surprise to me. Talk me through okay. the dragon show. So it was about this girl and her pet dragon, and it was just about like the crazy adventures and like mischief they went on. Unfortunately, I could never find the original recordings that we made, but it does exist somewhere. How did you do it? Did you set up microphones? Did you just yeah. have a cassette? Look. Yeah, no, it was just done through her, like her old computer at her parents' house. It was one <laughs> microphone, not two. Did anybody else get to listen to those? Our parents. <laughs> I love it. I remember. Uh, I remember recording stuff as a kid as well. Because for quite some time, I wanted to be a radio announcer. Gave mm-hmm. up on that dream when I left school because I completely stuffed up uh, everything at school. I just didn't try hard enough. So didn't think about going off to radio school. Mm-hmm. Didn't realize you could probably get into radio school without actually having to pass anything at school. You just need some charisma. Uh, thankfully, I've got just a, an ounce of that. But I remember recording stuff as well, just mm-hmm. for the love of recording things uh, so clearly it was in your bones to do what you do what you're doing now yeah I think I've always loved storytelling so talk me through the arc of then how you got to stuff because it's not where you it's not where you've started out so talk me through getting to yeah getting I didn't to go point. from dragon radio show to stuff <laughs> <laughs> um so uh, yeah I think I always knew throughout school and high school so I guess I took the right subjects at school media studies and English and those were always subjects I was quite strong at and then I did a Bachelor of Communication Studies at AUT and then I did one year postgrad over in Finland at the University of Helsinki so I did foreign reporting there and then when I got back to New Zealand I started at Attitude Pictures which is a TV production company and they make content about people with disabilities and mental health and chronic illness and then from there I always knew I wanted to work in a mainstream news organization because I felt like that's where I could make the biggest impact in terms of you know disability and storytelling and what I was really passionate about there so then yeah I just kept applying for jobs I think it took me a good six months and I think I had applied for 25 jobs because yes I did list them and the job as a digital producer came up at stuff so that's what I initially went for and got how I got my foot in the door so I did that for a few years digital producing and homepage editing for stuff and then um, spent a few months off to focus on doing the podcast which was an amazing opportunity to be able to do that full-time 
Um, and then, uh, yeah, the Potiaki team at Stuff became a bit more established and they were looking for reporters and that's how I ended up there now. Nice. Now, last season we talked to Carmen uh, about Stuff's apology and the formation of Potiaki. Now, I know that when she explained it, it was more than just a representation of Māori. It was something wider and bigger than that. But for those who might not have heard that, how does disability fit into what Potiaki is? Mm, I guess the, yeah, the original concept of Potiaki was to represent and take a stand for and protect Māori views and Māori people um, and their stories but that's kind of widened into taking a multi-lens approach to all underrepresented groups. So um, people with disabilities, people who are immigrants, the rainbow community, um, you know, people who are in elderly age groups, people who don't often get a strong voice in the mainstream media. So that's kind of what we see as our, our focus and our area of expertise. And so I mainly cover disability issues and it's not something that was assumed I would cover even though it's something I really did want to cover thoroughly and I thought you know a year into it I might be sick of it but I'm not. (laughs) That's good that's good. You're someone who would have had a lens on uh, reporting around disability growing up that most of us wouldn't have for obvious reasons. What's your sense of what disability reporting has been like up until uh, the moment that you're in now? Yeah, I think a lot of the stories I saw about disabled people growing up were things that I just couldn't relate to. And I think it really added to my own internalized ableism of not being proud or wanting to identify as being disabled, which is not the case now. So, you know, a lot of the stories and the um, stereotypes we see are, like you said, victimhood, and um, they're stories of tragedy, or you've got the other side where it's like stories of triumph of them overcoming their disability or overcoming this significant challenge and you wouldn't kind of tell the same story if that person wasn't disabled if that makes sense so I could never relate to these stories and so I you know I knew that there was a better way because I knew how I wanted to be represented or how I wanted to be seen Um, and so yeah there was a gap there and hopefully it's you know something I've been able to help shape and fill. If you could encapsulate how you do want to be seen uh, Mm. because I would imagine uh, there's that tendency to see the disability uh, among many as a problem to overcome which is why you end up with the victim story or the hero story. If you could sum up how you would like to be seen uh, what would you say? Yeah I think for me um, having a disability is definitely a strong part of who I am and my identity, although it's not the main part. And I've probably uh, actively chosen to embrace it more than other disabled people would. So from my own perspective, um, I guess, yeah, how do I want to be seen? That's a good question. You know, as, as, a, as a storyteller, as someone who, who cares about people, and if having a disability or being able to relate to other disabled people gives me another, you know, an extra level of empathy, then that's really beneficial to everyone. 
Mm. What about that weight of responsibility? Because I know having uh, having talked to many Māori about what it means to be Māori, there's that tendency among us Pākehā sometimes when you've got someone who's Māori in your life to see that that person is encapsulating all things Māori. So they take on the role of having to uh, inform you about everything, to educate you, to have to tell you uh, how you should speak and everything you're supposed to do, they take on that weight. I would imagine there's something similar in play for you as well when it comes to reporting on disability. Yeah, I think there's one particular story that really made me realise why I love my job so much and it's so important. Uh, Family had approached me regarding the accessibility in their house and it was a bit of a complicated situation on why they couldn't make it accessible. Can I just pause you there? Because they went to the media. Now we often, uh, there are situations where people go to the media and I just think, you just didn't get what you wanted. Now you've gone to the nuclear option. You've given a journalist an easy story, but actually it's not really a story. But this is different because this is people who wouldn't normally have a voice. They've tried to raise their voice in a space where difference needs to be made and they haven't been listened to mm. and so in this instance they've gone to the media yeah I think it's interesting because I kind of have two types of people who actually approach or you know who I interact with some people don't want to talk to journalists because of the way that they've been portrayed in, in the past but some people really see it as a last resort so this was that case with this family they've been trying different funding avenues to get make their house accessible but there were so many kind of like so much government red tape and roadblocks in the way they'd gone to different ministries you know for support funding but they just weren't getting anywhere so this mum came to me quite um desperate and saying how they had to carry their daughter who used a wheelchair up and down the stairs every day and it was just not good for anyone it's not just physical health but like mental health you know having to deal with this on a daily basis a barrier that could be solved Mm. so I, yeah, I did some digging. I worked with the family and built a good relationship with them and went over to see them and their daughter, who was just gorgeous. And, um, yeah, we took some photos and videos of the dad carrying her up and down the stairs. And then quite soon after that, (laughs) coincidentally, I had crossed paths with someone from the Ministry of Disabled People at the abuse and care hearing. We just crossed paths because they were also um, sharing and then I was there and, you know, saying like, oh, you know, I wish we had more context to know about what happened to this family. And I was like, yeah, it was a real shame. Their last resort was to come to the media. And then they said how they were going to try help them. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll keep an eye on this, find out where this goes. Um, then earlier this year, I just checked in with the family to see how they were doing. And she was like, the mum was like, great news, Olivia. Like after the story came out, the government have said they're going to help partially fund our lift. And I was like... Yes, this is the result. I wish every story ended like this. But yeah, it's just made a huge difference in their life. And yes, you know, journalism is important because, you know, it keeps those to account, um, those in power accountable. And I think it was really interesting kind of working with this family is because I also navigate these inaccessible systems and face these barriers in terms of needing funding for a wheelchair or modifications and things like that. And it was really cool kind of connecting with people like that because so often when you meet someone new, you kind of have to like, you know, be... Uh, build a rapport but we can kind of skip the whole like oh this disability system is so hard because we both understand it and we're both on the same page so you can kind of almost like go direct to the issue when you do write about these types of things 
Yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine, it seems to me, as someone who doesn't have that experience, that some of the issues in that family, you've got, as you've mentioned, the physicality of needing to carry someone all the time. If someone gets older, that's going to get harder and harder. My back wouldn't be able to handle it. Um, but then for the young lady as well, there's a loss of independence and all, yes. there's a, and all the identity that's wrapped up in that, I would imagine. Mm, yeah. No, I think that is really important in terms of just like the dignity of being able to live your life with with your disability and for so many people you know it's having enough support and resources around them to allow that that word dignity i think is totally worth putting on the table because essentially that's that's at the heart of what we're talking about here is how do we provide for every single human being a sense of the dignity that they are just naturally endowed with yet so often as society and as people we rob people of their dignity uh, so how for disabled people do do we do we promote dignity and how do we supply it in a, in a way that just enables it to be lived out without having to be pursued too hard mm. I'm really glad you used that word yeah and I do feel that responsibility and that burden but it's just because I care I because I could be wrong but I'm pretty sure I'm I'm the only or one of the few disabled journalists in New Zealand covering disability issues so I do get pitched a lot of stories and a lot of people come to me um, which is which is great to you know to have that reputation but also um, yeah I do feel a sense of guilt if I can't do every person's story because I'm only human and I've only got a certain capacity and so yeah it's something I, I find challenging but at the end of the day like my Someone, there was another journalist who said something about my responsibility is in the effort. Mm. And so, um, you know, even when I am able to cover someone's story, but the change that they would hope would come out of going to the media would happen, doesn't happen, that responsibility is not on me. My responsibility is to tell that person's story and hopefully shift a little bit of change in the wider system of systemic issues that disabled people face. But I guess, yeah, it is something I still feel challenged about and in a bit of guilt. Like, you know, who knows if I'm going to be at stuff forever? Probably not. But if I'm not, you know, who's going to fill this role? Because it is really important. Mm. And it's really unique because there's not a lot of people out there in your position doing it. Uh, mm. So you, you've carved out a space that that is unique. Mm. Uh, and who knows if someone else will come along and and take that up but I love the perspective there's this little bit that you can do and the and the big thing I think uh, I think many journalists need to own that pers- that perspective uh, that as they seek change there's this little bit that they can do they don't have to solve the the whole before we launch into the topic that you want to talk about because it's just so big uh, tell me about the ponamu you're wearing oh yeah so this ponamu was given to me by my journalism lecturer AUT Gregory Treadwell and I get asked to do quite a few speaking things just because I've got a unique perspective, especially in the media space. And I spoke at the AUT Diversity Hui a few years ago. And then he gave this to me as a thank you. And I never wore it for so long just because I didn't feel qualified to wear it as something that's taonga, that's significant in Māori culture. But then I wore it a few weeks ago when I was covering Te Matatini in Eden Park with a few of my colleagues and felt so embraced and so enjoyed the day and the feedback we got in our stories was so positive from the people that were there. It made me kind of feel like, oh yeah, I can own this space as well, even if I'm not Māori myself. Yeah, I like it. 
Now, we last saw each other at the Gang Hui, where the gangs got together, some of our New Zealand's gangs, and they were presenting their stories on abuse and care to the Royal Commission of Inquiry. Uh, it's a big event to be at. It was a big thing to have happen. What brought you there? Because this is what we're going to talk about. Yeah, so I've been um, covering the Royal Commission Abuse and Care Inquiry for the last year quite thoroughly, but more specifically at the Disability, Deaf and Mental Health public hearings. So they've obviously got a few different streams in in this inquiry with various um, religious groups or schools or institutions, but I, I kind of focused on the disability ones last year. And yeah, I mean, sadly, but unsurprisingly, due to the systems in place, but majority of people in, you know, in state care who had bad results were disabled people to some extent. So I remember at the beginning of the year, when we were kind of planning our kind of content for the year, this was last year, thinking, I don't know if I'm up for covering this. This is really heavy. Was it something that was put on the table that you could possibly cover? Was it something that you wanted to cover? How, how did how did it come about that you ended up with it? Yeah, I think it was a bit of, oh, the disability hearing is on, Olivia, you probably want to look into that. Um, but we still have quite a lot of autonomy in what stories we do want to pick up, which is, you know, quite amazing to have that freedom. But yeah, I remember thinking, I don't, yeah, this is going to be too overwhelming for me just the stories and you know how awful they are but also for me as a disabled person going into the space thinking this is going to have a profound impact on me and it really did talk me through Mm. talk me through the beginning of that experience so I would imagine there was a bit of trepidation based on what you've just said yeah talk me talk me through how it started yeah to be honest, I hadn't actually kind of thoroughly covered or looked into the previous hearings that well. So I went into it a bit a bit naive, maybe. And so, you know, this inquiry has been going on for a few years. And so they've got these um, public hearings of survivors who share their stories in this public space. And it almost feels like you're going into court in a way. You've got these commissioners lined up at the front and you've got the public who can watch. And then you've got the kind of lawyers from the state side and then you've also got the survivors and then you've got the media at the back so even that kind of setting was quite new to me so you kind of go and and they've got a full day of hearings and so I went on the first day of the disability hearing went sat in the back with other media and um on the opening day I was just yeah kind of overwhelmed by the, the to the extent of the stories and the survivors and what they were going to share thinking wow this is so brave but um I knew it was going to be heavy um and then I think it was that first day where um there was one survivor and he basically described how he was involved you know as a young boy he described basically a child pedophile ring at one of these institutions and it was very graphic and detailed and this was later on in the day, so actually a lot of the other reporters from other outlets kind of left halfway through, and I stayed the whole day. And I remember telling my boss about it just in advance, say, this is what the stories that's going to come, and just the swear words that came through our Slack channel. I think people were just shocked. But because I'm like in that moment, in the zone, I have to file the story, I'm reporting it, I was just probably not even really taking in the details. I was kind of reporting what was happening and blah, 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 and then filed it to them. And then um, 
I mean, that's my most read story. That's how kind of awful and graphic and, you know, this level of interest in that was. And so, but the whole day was quite bizarre because it was also the first day that my car got towed and it was raining. And so then I, because it went later than I thought and I thought they wouldn't tow my car, but they did. And I had to like pick up my car from the tow yard. And I think that's kind of what actually tipped me over the edge the whole day. Like the weight of that day and covering it just hit me. And then um, my mum actually came over that evening to spend some time with me because I knew she, she knew it was going to be an overwhelming day. And then that same day, we had a big cry and a big hug and prayed together, and it was lovely. But she also had told me how when I was younger, and she'd never told me this before, how when I was little and I was in a wheelchair, someone in the supermarket, these weird conversations happen in the supermarket when you're in a wheelchair, um, that you know I should be admitted into some institution yeah. as well. It'd be way easier on her. And I think back, you know, if I was 60 years ago, I would have been one of those kids, you know, who was raped and molested and like treated awfully. So I think the combination of all that just was so impactful, making me feel a sense of survivor's guilt. Like, I'm so glad that I live in this era. But also it kind of brought up something in me. These stories of these survivors are really important to, to share. Like, we have a duty to share these stories people need to know them even if they're awful but they need to be told and the survivors need to be listened to and understood because like that can never happen again Mm. and it's it's not like we're talking about something way in the past we're talking about people's lives who are living now and I think I think that's the shocking thing people want to imagine these things as as distant when they're not they're actually really really close one of the things that I'm interested in in what you just described was the experience of having your car towed (laughs) it's that's horrific to have to deal with even when you're not having to deal with something as big as what you were listening to that day that would tip many of us over anyway I can imagine myself getting really angry if I found my car towed and then having to work it out but it's still a fairly normal activity Mm. but in undertaking that normal activity you're doing so having dealt with this other massive massive thing that's that's really big and being in a wheelchair yeah just to clarify like it's really hard to stay dry when it's raining in a wheelchair yeah. and then finding an uber and then trying to explain to them how like oh and then when we went to the car tow place the little office wasn't accessible thank goodness i had a really nice uber driver who obviously felt really sorry for me sometimes like when you have a disability you kind of have to play it up you yeah, know yeah. so i was like oh i'm in a wheelchair <laughs> please help me and so yeah he really helped me and he went into the thing and signed it off so he could help me get my car out. And it was such a thing. But anyway, it was a lot. But see, this is what I, this is what I don't think many of us who are not dealing with that sort of stuff consider. Because we have an expectation that, you know, our police officers, our ambulance, our firefighters, when we hear what they've dealt with in a day, well, it kind of makes sense that they might fall out over some other things then. But journalists are going through that too, dealing with big stuff during the day, and then we expect you to turn up at dinner parties and still be smiling, still be eating the food, still be telling the jokes. It's massive. Mm. I think that's worth uh, worth more of us considering. It's just the stuff that you're dealing with uh, during the day. How do you process it? Apart from having your mum to chat with and to pray with and to cry with 
You've then got to get back into the job again the next day. I went to a few more hearings that were not as bad as that first day. Yeah. I mean, it sounds awful to say this, but you couldn't really beat that day. Um, yeah, I think I the way I went into after that first day is just really looking and hearing these stories and, you know, seeing these survivors and the pe- other people who shared their stories as really um, people to be admired. And so when I kind of like... Uh, shifted my thinking about that and thinking about how strong they were and the importance of my job and telling them and telling their story that really helped but yeah after those first few stories I had so many people like reach out to me checking I was okay a lot of like people that I admire and look up to is also in the disability community kind of kind of a few generations ahead of me or you know other leaders or role models reached out to me and check checking I was okay which was amazing such great support from colleagues I did go to see a counsellor after that which was my first time seeing a counsellor and that was really really good I feel like generally I am quite good at like processing things and maybe I do have a bit more um, toughness or stamina because I have yeah a bit more resilience because I have to like deal with that on an everyday basis like you know minor things and being a wheelchair user and getting around but yeah no I I definitely took me I I was quite proactive to making sure that I was okay because a lot of other people kind of wanted to check in on me and make you know making sure that I was okay as well. Based on what you've heard from the those hearings what because I know that most journalists have a have an activist bent, a justice bent. There, there are things that they want to see changed. For those of us who were not sitting in those hearings, what do we need to know? What would you like to see shift and change? That, not to the same scale, but abuse and neglect of disabled people still happens today. You'd like to think that this is historical, but... There are lots of ways that disabled people still face discrimination and inequities today. And that is because we have these, you know, wider systems that just aren't designed or set up to cater to people's needs. They, you know, are essential to live a full life and to live, you know, without violence in their life or without abuse. So... Um, I mean, I would say all the public hearings are still available online. Like, you can still listen and watch them. They haven't kind of gone. So you can't really watch it and then not be changed or not be moved or not care. But, yeah, there's still so many wider systemic issues and barriers that disabled people face that aren't just within that Royal Commission. Like what? I mean, most of us would get annoyed at people who park in disabled parking, but that's probably about as far as our sense of, of it goes. Uh, what what does it look like? I think it's interesting, yeah. The, the more visible barriers are the ones that people are probably aware of. Um, and I guess it's more the systemic issues and fighting that people go for. I mean, I hear stories every day of people who just... Um, don't have enough funding or enough support to make their home wheelchair accessible. Or um, things like, you know, young people who have a learning disability and they need just need additional support to go into a course that they want to for, you know, after school, but they don't have that, so they're at home doing nothing. It's these kind of systemic issues that there's not enough funding, not enough resource, and I get that we've only got a search. We don't have millions of dollars of everyone and resources readily available for everyone, But there are things that need to be changed in terms of giving disabled people, yeah, more choice and control and autonomy in their lives. I don't want to compare well ahead of other countries, but in terms of 
it's the little barriers that people face that build up over time um, that is probably what's more exhausting living with a disability than the actual impairment itself. Mm, mm, it's really good, really good point. When you do think about what the future could look like for uh, disabled, when you think about the stuff that you've heard in the Abuse and Care Royal Commission of Inquiry, what could the future look like? I mean, I fully want to also acknowledge that I've lived a very privileged life as a disabled person. You know, I lived up in a loving home. I got all the resources and support that I need in terms of having a wheelchair, you know, multiple wheelchairs over my life. I've got a fully adapted car. You know, I live in a, you know, accessible home. So, yeah, for a disabled person, yeah, I do acknowledge my... And my education has also kind of added to my privilege as well. I guess I would say that there needs to be, yeah, more investment into supporting disabled people um, at an earlier age because the more young people are supported and not just finances and resources and support, but also like, this is where like media representation comes in. It's like young people seeing role models with disabilities so they can actually realise that they've got a lot more potential than their non-disabled school friend or teacher may put on them. So I think it does start there, but right throughout life, disabled people need support depending on circumstances that change. Um, and so, yeah, that's enough support for, you know, a support worker to, to go to the supermarket with them or it's, you know, someone who's deaf or hard of hearing to be able to just readily have a sign language interpreter available when they need it. Um, there's so many little things, and the disability community is so wide and the needs are so diverse. It's not an easy fix. I mm. fully acknowledge that. But there are things that um, could be changed so disabled people can, you know, reach their potential and be fully embraced in society like everyone else. Mm. The word normalisation has come up uh, previously. There's probably societal attitudes that feed into that. Like I think about what you said your mother encountered in the supermarket about the possibility of you having to be put into an institution. I mean, there there's the head of someone who thinks there's a problem here that needs to be solved, and here's how to solve it. So there's probably a whole bunch of a whole bunch more normalising that needs to needs to go on. I would imagine mm -hmm. just in how everybody thinks about it. Yeah, and I think like you were saying, you know, do I feel a sense of responsibility? like yes I do to like the next generation of young people with disabilities because I never saw disabled journalists when I was a young kid even though I knew it was something I aspired to but maybe more young people would actually see it as a realistic goal if they did see more people with disabilities out there doing doing ordinary things doing the things that they aspire to yeah without mm -hmm. necessarily thinking that they have to report on disability yeah as well mm -hmm. it's just if your passion is something else then go and report on mm -hmm. something else mm -hmm. when you think about the future of journalism then olivia what do you imagine for journalism in aotearoa one thing i would love to see is that journalism is more accessible so i mean i use a wheelchair i would love to roll up to any media conference or court or anywhere and it was fully accessible for anyone with a wheelchair to access and report on that is currently not the case but also in terms of how we consume media I would also love it to be more accessible in terms of all our podcasts and tv shows and news reports have captions or transcripts available for people who are deaf or hard of hearing or 
things like image descriptions for people who are blind and that's I guess the practical accessible side but also that yeah that the voice of disabled people is strong throughout all our stories and that their perspectives are considered when it comes to things like big news events because disabled people in particular are significantly disadvantaged when it comes to these big news events and crisis that you know we've seen in recent years such as you know a covid pandemic weather events disabled people are always going to be left behind but that's because of the systems don't cater to their needs in the first place so yeah just a stronger proud disability voice i like it well thank you for raising your voice olivia Nga mihi nui, Olivia. Thank you for generously taking the time to sit down for this kōrero. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series, and thanks to you for giving some of your precious time to listen. I appreciate it. Also a big thanks to Josh Couch and Sam Donkin for producing this podcast, and Steph So Love Mao for her wonderful photography of our guests. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who would love to hear it. And remember to follow in your favourite app to catch future episodes. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media, and we demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you do work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up. And the coffee's on us.